Welcome, everybody. Uh, this meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy will come to order. I'd like to begin by thanking Senator Romney, Ranking Member Romney, and members of the committee for being here, uh, Senator Ricketts, as we discuss the security and other challenges facing the Korean Peninsula and U.S. interests and the role in the region. Uh, we're grateful to be joined by three experts uh, in this area, uh, Dr. Victor Cha, Mr. Scott Snyder, and Ms. Jenny Town. And I'm going to introduce each of them more fully in a minute. Despite the passage of 70 years since the end of the Korean War, lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula remains elusive, and the security concerns stemming from this conflict continue to echo far beyond the region. The alliance between the Republic of Korea and the United States, forged in mutual sacrifice seven decades ago, remains a key linchpin for peace and prosperity in East Asia. And as we have reaffirmed in recent months, the U.S. commitment to this alliance is ironclad. In April, uh, President Biden welcomed South Korean President Yoon for a state visit in which the two leaders unveiled the Washington Declaration to reinforce extended deterrence and respond to North Korea's growing nuclear threats. That same month, Senator Romney and I and our colleagues uh, passed a bipartisan Senate resolution to honor the 70th anniversary of our historic alliance, and President Yoon also addressed a joint session of Congress. In August, President Biden hosted an historic summit at Camp David with President Yoon and Japanese Prime Minister Kushida to deepen our trilateral cooperation and bring greater peace, prosperity, and security to the Indo-Pacific region. I salute the efforts of these leaders to heal, heal old wounds, look to the future, and address shared challenges. This trilateral partnership will help to counter the military threat from North Korea, as our nations have committed to share real-time data on North Korean missile launches by the end of this year. I also commend the strong language the leaders issued in response to the PRC's mounting aggression in the South China Sea. This is an historic moment in the US-ROK alliance, one we can build on to confront a range of pressing global security and economic challenges. One of those challenges is, of course, Putin's war against Ukraine, which has shaken the international order, not just in Europe, but around the world. Autocrats across the globe, including Xi Jinping in China and Kim Jong-un in North Korea, are paying close attention to the collective response of the United States and our allies, and will draw lessons based on that response. Kim Jong-un has been seeking to leverage Russia's need for a supply of basic munitions to gain access to Russia's advanced missile technology. At the UN, two weeks ago, President Yoon vowed that South Korea and its allies will not, quote, stand idly by, unquote, and we must not. I look forward to recommendations from our witnesses as to what we can do together. But among the steps we should take is to better enforce the existing U.S. and international sanctions against the DPRK, including the provision of the bipartisan Otto Warmbier Brink Act, which I authored a couple years ago. It took effect in 2019. That law put additional teeth into the sanctions regime, applying secondary sanctions against foreign banks and entities that violate them. 
But the sanctions regime has been, regime has been subject to a lot of leakage. In fact, the United Nations has identified a variety of schemes the DPRK is using to evade those sanctions and some of the firms that are aiding and abetting them in that effort. And North Korea's theft of, theft of cryptocurrency to fund its illegal weapons programs is another area we must do more to monitor and crack down on. We must also do more to shine a light on the horrendous human rights abuses taking place in North Korea. The DPRK's increasing alignment with Russia and China raises other concerns that we will discuss uh, as we uh, go forward. There are many other areas where we have to coordinate our efforts with South Korea, including countering the PRC's economic coercion, preventing the export to the PRC of cutting-edge technologies that can enhance China's military technologies, and the need for the United States and South Korea to work together with other countries in the region to support our goal of a free and open Indo-Pacific. We have a lot of ground to cover today, but before I introduce our witnesses, let me turn it over to Senator Romney for his opening statement. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the uh, members of this panel for being here. Um, I have uh, uh, met at least one of you before, but others of you I have uh, followed by virtue of your expertise and appreciate your willingness to testify here today and provide your perspective and experience. Um, I apologize in advance for having to leave at 3.20. I have another engagement that I uh, unfortunately will have to run to attend, um, but I'm deeply interested in this topic. I would uh, uh, underscore the significance of the year, 70 years, as um, uh, an anniversary of the Korean War. Um, dear friends of mine served in that, in that war, in that conflict, uh, and my, uh, my heart um, is uh, moved by the sacrifice made by many of the people of, of, uh, of your nation, or, excuse me, of the South Korean nation, as well as our nation, who, who have served uh, uh, together uh, to provide for the security that, that now exists in, in South Korea. Um, I, uh, I recognize, as we all do, that the South Korean War, the Korean War was rather at the, uh, at the outset of the Cold War, and in some respects, we are facing another Cold War today, uh, not with the former Soviet Union so much as with a uh, assertive uh, China. Um, at the outset of those things, our circumstances are different. Uh, one is that the um, ROK has been an extraordinary technological leader and economic powerhouse. Uh, it, it is uh, hard to imagine a place which is more technologically advanced than South Korea. Uh, that provides more products to the world than South Korea. It's, uh, it has it is, uh, uh, fought well above its weight class in, uh, in the world of economic affairs and in uh, geopolitics, uh, which is greatly appreciated uh, here and by, by other nations around the world. At the same time, North Korea has become, uh, at least in my view, more belligerent uh, and more malevolent in the uh, last uh, year or two. Uh, we're seeing that not only with, uh, uh, with, with aggressive actions with their missiles, but also with, with uh, uh, various flights and so forth that are, that are threatening. Uh, and, um, uh, and, of course, with uh, North Korea indicating a potential uh, to provide weapons to Russia in their invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. I, uh, uh, I'm concerned about the... Um, the fact that, uh, that South Korea has a nuclear neighbor, neighbor to its north with a massive investment in conventional as well as nuclear arms 
and at the same time does not have a nuclear capacity of its own. And I would presume if I lived there, I would be um, disturbed by that uh, lack of balance and would be wondering uh, how that could be uh, uh, remediated. Uh, so I look forward to hearing your perspectives on, on, on these matters. I, I, I share the chairman's uh, deep conviction that it's critical that uh, our nations remain closely allied, that, uh, that we combine our support with the support of other nations in the region, uh, Japan, uh, obviously in particular, uh, and, um, and, and that, uh, that association I'd like to get your perspective on as well. So with that, Mr. Chairman, we'll turn to your questions and then we'll be able to hear uh, ultimately from our, our, our panelists. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator Romney, uh, for those remarks. Um, I'm now going to introduce uh, more fully our three witnesses. Thank you all again for joining us. Uh, we have Victor Shaw, who's the Senior Vice President for Asia and Korean Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and is also the Distinguished Professor of Government at Georgetown University. He was appointed in 2021 by the Biden administration to serve on the Defense Policy Board in an advisory role, as an advisory role to the Secretary of Defense. From 2004 to 2007, he served on the National Security Council and was responsible, responsible for Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Island nations. Earlier, uh, he was deputy head of delegation at the six-party talks and received two outstanding service commendations during his tenure uh, at the NSC. He's the author of seven books, two-time Fulbright scholar, and currently serves on 10 editorial boards of academic journals, among many other accomplishments and expertise. Thank you, Dr. Cha, for being here. Scott Snyder uh, is a senior fellow for Korea Studies and director of the program of US-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to joining the Council on Foreign Relations, Mr. Snyder was a senior associate in the International Relations Program of the Asia Foundation, where he founded and directed the Center for US-Korea Policy and served as the Asia Foundation's representative in Korea from 2000 to 2004. He was also a senior associate at the Pacific Forum Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has worked as an Asia specialist in the research and studies program of the US Institute of Peace and as acting director of the Asia Society's Contemporary Affairs Program. He was the Pantech Visiting Fellow at Stanford University's Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center from 2005 to 2006 and received an AVE Fellowship in 1998 from 1999 by the Social Security's Research Council. Again, thank you, uh, Mr. Schneider, for being here to share your, your expertise. Jenny Town is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center and the director of Stimson's 38 North program. Her expertise in North Korea, U.S. DPRK relations, U.S. ROK alliance, and the Northeast Asia regional security is well known and established. She was named one of Worth Magazine's, quote, Groundbreakers 2020, 50 Women Changing the World, and one of Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business in 2019 for her role in co-founding and managing the 38 North website which provides policy and technical analysis on North Korea. Ms. Town is also an expert reviewer for Freedom House's Freedom in the World Index, where she previously worked on the Human Rights in North Korea project. 
From 2008 to 2018, Ms. Towns served as the Assistant Director of the U.S.-Korea Institute at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, known as SICE. Ms. Town, welcome, and thank you very much uh, for being with you, with us. And so let me now turn it over uh, to you, uh, Victor Chu, for your statement. Uh, well, thank you, Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Romney, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Um, I'm going to use my time to reflect on two recent and important developments with regard to security on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, from a U.S. perspective, one of these is positive and one of these is negative. Um, the positive developments relate to the vast improvement, uh, as uh, Senator Romney suggested in his comments, in tri trilateral relations between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, the scope of agreements reached at Camp David uh, really are impressive and unprecedented. Um, and it leads me to ask sort of why did this happen? You know, why did these three allies come together? And I think there are five reasons. The first is that the external security environment has compelled a much higher level of cooperation among the allies. To put it bluntly, the war in Europe really has changed everything, not just in Europe, but also in Asia. The unthinkable, such as war in the Taiwan Strait or on the Korean Peninsula, has now become possible, and leaders are looking for ways to try to create more certainty and more stability. A second factor is China's increasingly assertive behavior in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, and in the Taiwan Straits that has created much more uncertainty in the minds of leaders in Asia when you couple that with the war in Europe. A third factor bringing the three allies together, of course, is North Korea's unceasing ICBM and weapons of mass destruction campaign. In the past months, uh, North Korea has tested its first successful solid propellant nuclear ICBM, and this campaign shows no signs of abating anytime soon. And the fourth factor contributing to the success of trilateralism is South Korean President Yun's efforts at improving relations with Japan. Uh, the South Korean president basically took what would be the hardest foreign policy issue domestically and pushed forward even when initially it was not being reciprocated by Tokyo. So the significance of this trilateral cooperation cannot be underestimated. When the United States, Japan, and South Korea are together, each is safer and each has a stronger ground upon which to deal with China. While Camp David has been a positive development for security on the Korean Peninsula, the negative development relates to the budding relationship between North Korea and Russia. It is not new in the sense that there has always been cooperation between Pyongyang and Moscow, but there are a few elements that are new. First, the North Korean leader arguably has leverage in the relationship for the first time in recent memory. Uh, Putin needs fresh supplies of ammunition and shells from North Korea to prosecute this unjust war in Ukraine. And that gives Kim, Kim Jong-un a lot of leverage. Second, the Kim-Putin summit reduces Kim's need to talk to the United States. It is noteworthy that the Biden administration has stated its interest in re-engaging in dialogue with North Korea with no preconditions as to the results of those talks. This, to me, is a subtle but significant change that suggests greater flexibility in the U.S. position. However, the prospects of such talks, I think, are even less likely uh, because of the Putin-Kim summit. Indeed, I believe that part of the reason for Kim's engagement with Putin is because of the spectacular failure and the inability to recover from uh, the, uh, the era of summit diplomacy with the previous administration in the United States. 
The only way the North Korean leader could save face with regard to that was to come out of the COVID lockdown and seek a major summit with either Xi Jinping or Putin, and he got his summit with Putin. Third, I'm concerned that this summit meeting could result in, in substantial and significant Russian support of North Korea's weapons programs. To put it bluntly, the North Korean leader would not have traveled all the way to Russia simply for a food uh, for munitions deal. Kim is looking for Russian assistance with his nuclear weapons program, with his military satellite program, a nuclear-powered submarine, and his ICBM program. Fourth, the summit will likely lead to more DPRK forced labor being sent to Russia. Uh, we've just done a report looking at Russia and China, who have been major perpetrators of North Korean human rights abuses. There are several options for how the United States should respond to this, and I'll just highlight a few. The full list is in my written testimony. The first is to seek coordinated responses in form of sanctions through the G7 Plus and the NATO AP4 venues. It is no longer possible to seek action on North Korea through the UN Security Council given Russia and China's opposition. Second, consider a new declaratory policy to neutralize DPRK ICBM launches, including the possibility of preemptive action. This is a risky policy, but it would be aimed at deterring further testing by DPRK. Third, consider South Korean lethal assistance to Ukraine. South Korean President Yun has stated that North Korea's provision of lethal assistance to Russia is a direct threat to South Korea's security. South Korea thus far has provided humanitarian assistance and indirect lethal support through third parties like Poland and the United States. Uh, fourth, consider enhanced South Korea cooperation with AUKUS. Should Russia provide nuclear submarine technology to North Korea, this might be considered a response. South Korea has world-class port facilities that could be nuclear certified. And then finally, frame choices for China. Beijing remains ambivalent about this new cooperation between Pyongyang and Moscow. The United States should make clear to China that it cannot use North Korea as a vehicle for indirectly supporting Russia's war. In conclusion, there are some who might argue that this new development in DPRK-Russia cooperation is a response to the Camp David summit. I don't believe that to be the case. Russia's need for ammunition alone would have made this cooperation inevitable. This concatenation of developments in the region, however, is precipitating an arms race in Asia, but this is not at the initiative of the United States or its allies. China's massive nuclear buildup, North Korea's drive to become a nuclear weapon state the size of France, and most of all, Russia's war in Europe have fundamentally changed the security environment in the region and on the peninsula in ways that have compelled countries who, are, who support the peaceful status quo to respond. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Chow. Uh, Mr. Snyder. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the privilege of participating in this hearing on security on the peninsula and for spotlighting the impact of a new era of major power rivalry on the peninsular and Indo-Pacific security situation. Uh, thank you also for your strong voice of support for the U.S.-South Korea alliance, uh, reflected in your opening comments, which is our most valuable instrument for responding to international security challenges, not only on the peninsula, but increasingly globally. Uh, the U.S.-South Korea alliance has become even more important in the context of a possible contagion of revisionist actions modeled on Russia's invasion of Ukraine that China and North Korea, as challengers to internationally accepted borderlines, might be tempted to repeat in Asia. And bipartisan congressional support for the alliance is also important against the backdrop of domestic political polarization and emerging forms of narrow nationalism in the U.S. and South Korea 
that could hamper alliance cooperation that has served us so well for 70 years. Uh, I see three main impacts of the evolving global security situation on the Korean Peninsula. The first one you touched on in your opening statement, uh, and that is the paralysis of the UN Security Council as a result of major power rivalry as the main instrument by which we impose penalties on North Korea for its illegal ballistic missile launches and nuclear tests. Uh, China and Russia have opened a backdoor of supply to North Korea despite UNSC resolutions intended to keep the front door closed, and they are protecting North Korea from punishment from further UNSC violations. Given the paralysis at the UN, the United States has no choice but to build a coalition of the willing among like-minded countries in similar fashion to the development of the Proliferation Security Initiative in the mid-2000s, which supported efforts to discourage North Korean illicit maritime transfers. UN paralysis requires a revamp of the array of sanctions designed to deny North Korea's supply of technologies that have military uses. This effort should bypass Chinese and Russian non-cooperation through the pursuit of secondary sanctions as a means by which to hold banking entities accountable. Your, uh, the, the Otto Warmbier Brink Act that you sponsored is a step in the right direction toward addressing these issues. And the US and South Korea and Japan need to grapple uh, more actively with North Korea's exploitation of cyber theft as an instrument for circumventing legal restraints in its ability to conduct international transactions. There's also a need to supplement the public reporting on North Korean illicit transfers that had been supplied by the UN panel of experts as a means by which to hold North Korea's actions in the light. Second, uh, evolving byproducts of US-China rivalry include an expanded focus on competition with China and the strengthening of like-minded cooperation among the United States, Japan, and South Korea. The deepening institutionalization of US-Japan-South Korea coordination as a result of the Camp David summit has enhanced the effectiveness of that coalition to deal with the danger of Chinese coercive behavior, but there's also the development of a tit-for-tat dynamic between the US-Japan and South Korea on the one hand and Russia, China, and North Korea on the other. While strengthening our own coalition, the United States and South Korea, in my view, should resist the urge to allow policy toward North Korea to be subordinated to the U.S.-China rivalry, which may serve to push China, North Korea, and Russia closer toward each other. Rather, the United States and South Korea should pursue efforts to compartmentalize North Korea as an area where China maintains a limited shared interest in denuclearization despite U.S.-China strategic competition. Uh, third, North Korea's continued missile testing and the adjustment of its nuclear doctrine will continue to place pressure on the United States and South Korea to reconcile the gap uh, between the global view of extended deterrence through which the United States pledges to uphold global nonproliferation norms while responding to North Korean nuclear threats and the peninsular view, which focuses on the imbalance between a North Korea that has nuclear weapons and a South Korea that does not, as Senator Romney referenced. In addition to enhancing the U.S.-South Korea nuclear planning consultations through the Nuclear Consultative Group announced last April, the United States should also provide training to dedicated South Korean units in nuclear weapons response and containment in the event of nuclear use on the peninsula. This would equip South Korean personnel to respond in real time to nuclear use scenarios rather than having to wait on U.S. specialized units from off the peninsula in the event of use. 
Thank you again for the opportunity to join you today, and I look forward to the discussion. Ms. Town. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Romney um, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Um, it's really a deep honor to be here today and to be able to appear before you. And I'm truly grateful for both the committee's interest in this issue, but also this incredible opportunity to be part of this discussion with Dr. Cha and Mr. Snyder. Um, the recent summit between Putin and Kim and what seems to be a new level of military cooperation forming between the two comes as no surprise. Deepening alignment between China, Russia, and North Korea has been taking form for the past few years, and especially between Russia and North Korea since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. However, since the failure to reach an agreement in 2019 to keep U.S.-North Korea rapprochement alive, we've essentially been sidelined by Pyongyang. Overtures have been made um, and uh, to the North Koreans to try and revive those negotiations and essentially repeat the conversations of the past, despite, as we've all talked about, the drastic shifts in the geopolitical situation that work in North Korea's favor now. And certainly that hasn't worked. And instead, North Korea has spent these last few years, even while in pandemic isolation, building up its WMD programs in ways that challenge US and allied forces and are on trend with the arms race in the region. We're now watching this move into a new phase, and Pyongyang is cultivating actual security partners as well, and Russia seems more than willing given its precarious situation. Uh, to what extent is still unclear, but it seems enough to have Kim excited. So the question this raises is, how do we get back in the game? Um, this is obviously a challenge we haven't figured out, and one that we're seeing the consequences of play out in real time. While the U.S. has focused heavily on strengthening our alliances with South Korea and Japan to great success, as many have mentioned, um, and bolstering our extended deterrence arrangements, these efforts are still just one piece of the security puzzle. They are not going to reduce tensions or mitigate the threat environment on their own. And in fact, they often strengthen the North's conviction that its choices are just. North Korea, as the smaller country, meets power with power to prove that it won't be intimidated. And the US and South Korea are also good at meeting power with power. For every negative action North Korea takes, we are ready to increase pressure and demonstrate how much overmatch of capabilities we have, remind them that we could annihilate them if they crossed the line. However, as the bigger country and the stronger forces in this equation, we really should assess when we use these kinds of responses to be more strategic and to avoid the kind of escalation spiral we're caught in today. At the same time, what we aren't good at is matching goodwill for goodwill. Um, the trust deficit between our countries means that we assume North Korea's negative choices to have the most sinister intent, and we tend to believe that about their positive actions as well. This also has been an obstacle to diplomacy in the past. There have been times when North Korea wanted to negotiate, was willing to take or took unilateral actions to create windows of opportunity, but our own skepticism and reluctance to reciprocate led to missed opportunities. In fact, we posed, uh, we're actually posed with one of those moments today. The release of Travis King was the best possible outcome for all parties involved, and acknowledging that and finding a way to reciprocate that goodwill could potentially help create some small diplomatic opening. In my submitted remarks, I've listed a few recommendations for how to think about rebuilding diplomacy with North Korea, and I'll highlight just two here. Um, the first is we need a full-time envoy. 
North Korea's impact on regional and global security dynamics is serious and consequential and needs to be treated as such, despite what else is happening around the world. We should upgrade the special representative position back to a full-time position to strategize, to coordinate interagency efforts, and to be proactive and persistent in trying to reestablish channels of communication with the North Koreans. And second, we need to recognize that North Korea's loyalties and alignments are not forever. Um, and even the competition of influence between Russia and China that Pyongyang shows that Pyongyang cares most about the results. Finding ways to instill some confidence that resuming talks with the United States on a range of issues, not just nuclear, comes with some easy wins while we work towards more difficult outcomes may help lower the perception of political or even personal risk for our North Korean counterparts and may eventually be compelling. Certainly there are no magic answers here that are going to guarantee success and changing course is undoubtedly going to come with criticism. But waiting for North Korea to come around as the security situation on the Korean Peninsula becomes more dangerous does not serve the collective interests of the US or our allies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Town. And, and now we'll begin the, the questioning uh, period here. And I think all of you uh, know well that one of the big issues we're facing right now here in the United States Senate and House is the question of maintaining our security assistance and commitment to the people of Ukraine uh, as they continue to battle Putin's aggression. Uh, the Senate version of the continuing resolution included uh, at least a down payment uh, on that assistance. Uh, the House version uh, that ultimately passed uh, did not. Uh, but uh, President Biden has committed to making sure that we meet our commitments and there is bipartisan support uh, in the United States Senate and House uh, to continue to provide that assistance. Uh, but as we watch what's happening um, across the Capitol, uh, obviously there are concerns that have been raised. So my question to each of you, beginning with you, Dr. Cha, is uh, as South Korea uh, watches this, we, we know that, we know that, you know, President Xi is watching closely. We know that our adversaries are watching very closely what happens in Ukraine. But of course, so are our allies, I believe. So to each of you, beginning with Dr. Cha, what would be the impact on the uh, psychology of our security uh, alliance uh, between the United States and South Korea? Uh, what would be the psychological impact in, in South Korea uh, were the United States to discontinue uh, its support to the people of Ukraine? Um, so it's a great question. Um, my, I'll offer some thoughts on it. I, I think, um, so the region, uh, South Korea, our allies, South Korea, Japan, Australia, are watching very closely uh, what the United States is doing in Ukraine and how we're supporting Ukraine. If we were to discontinue funding, you know, I think politically they could rationalize it and say, well, you know, South Korea, Japan, we're treaty allies. Ukraine is not a treaty ally. It's not a member of NATO. So I think publicly, politically, they could rationalize it. But inside, behind closed doors, I think they would be very concerned that, you know, an, uh, you know, a, an attack of this nature against a country unprovoked uh, and then the United States does not continue its support of Ukraine 
would certainly have a major impact on the credibility of the U.S. commitment, not just in Europe, but also, uh, but also in Asia. I would say also Asian allies, including um, um, allies like Australia, Japan, South Korea, have also stepped up. They want to work with the United States and help to support um, the United States and NATO in terms of what they're doing in Ukraine. As you know well, you know, the, the Japanese, the South Koreans have been providing a lot of assistance. And the South Korean president has even hinted that he would provide uh, more assistance, not just humanitarian, but lethal assistance. Um, nevertheless, if the United States were to stop um, funding the, uh, uh, the, the defense of Ukraine, it would have a major impact on the way allies think about uh, our, our credibility. Thank you, Mr. Snyder. Uh, well, I would agree, as I suggested in my opening remarks, that there is the risk of a revisionist contagion uh, that I think our allies in Asia are focused on. I think that is the reason why the Russian invasion of Ukraine had such a big uh, impact on their own threat perceptions in the region. And so I do think that that uh, would be a setback. Uh, as related to the idea of allies stepping up, I agree that the idea uh, that most have is that they would go together with the United States. If they're asked to fill a gap, I think in particular in the context of South Korea, there are a couple of obstacles. Uh, one is domestic resistance, uh, but the more important one is that with the Putin-Kim summit, Russia has established a kind of mutual deterrence dynamic with South Korea as related to the possibility of lethal assistance to Ukraine. And that is essentially uh, the threat uh, that if South Korea provides lethal assistance to Ukraine, then Russia would up its assistance to North Korea uh, and vice versa. Uh, there is also a mutual deterrence dynamic with regard to uh, the question of how much Russia does with North Korea as related how, to how South Korea would, res would respond in terms of providing greater assistance to Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Town? Um, I, I tend to agree with my colleagues um, in terms of um, that this is very much seen as, as we're going together, that this is an allied response. Um, I, I think there would be a certain sense of betrayal if there was, if the U.S. did stop assisting Ukraine. Um, I think there's a lot of South Koreans, especially the South Korean public, who does see a lot of themselves in the Ukraine example of a country that's been attacked. Um, at the same time, I think there's the same kind of debate inside South Korea as there is here in the United States, where there's certainly also another faction of the public who doesn't see any affinity towards Ukraine and doesn't see it as their business either, um, especially when there are domestic issues um, that plague uh, the administration. So, you know, the U.S. leadership on Ukraine is especially important when we are talking about allied relations, and I do think it would cause our allies to also start to pull back and start to rethink their choices. Thank you. Senator Romney. Uh, Professor Shu, I wanted to begin this by asking you to elaborate on one of your uh, recommendations, uh, and I didn't quite understand. Uh, I think it was number two, uh, which was um, preemptive uh, action with regards to missile launch. What what did you mean by that? Um, and, and perhaps give me some logic or, or some pros and cons. Sure. Um, 
so one of the problems we have, Senator, is um, uh, since last year, North Korea does, has done over 100 ballistic missile tests. Um, we've never seen anything like this before. All of us have been studying this issue for decades, and we've never seen that level, that tempo of activity before. Um, those tests are for demonstration purposes, but they're also for advancing their capabilities. You need to test to know whether it works. Um, and we really don't have a good way of deterring those tests. When we're negotiating with them, I think as Jenny would agree, they don't test as much, but they're not interested in talking right now. At the same time, the three allies have gotten much more integrated in terms of missile defense tracking, uh, real-time early warning, these sorts of things. And my point is that given that this is not a, this is not, this is a moving target and it's getting worse and worse, what else can we do to try to deter them from testing? So one of the ideas there, and it's a risky one, is declaratory policy to say that we reserve the right to actually take down a missile if it's uh, headed over Japan or if it's headed towards Hawaii um, or the west coast of the United States. Uh, and that could be um, a mid-course intercept or it could be on the launch pad. Now, they're firing now mobile missiles, so it's harder to take it out preemptively. Um, but it, the idea is that we need to consider something to, to deter further missile testing, um, and we don't have anything that's doing that right now. It's risky. I acknowledge it's risky. Um, um, but perhaps we're at that point now. Thank you. Um, as I think about the, uh, the last couple of decades with uh, our relationship with uh, uh, the PRK, uh, DPRK, I... Um, uh, I, I, it seems to me that we've gone from pillar to post, guardrail to guardrail, uh, from uh, being aggressive and oppositional at one hand to writing love letters on the other to having a meet. I mean, it, we've been all over the map. Uh, it strikes me that we have no consistent strategy or policy with regards to uh, the DPRK. And, and I wonder if, if uh, you draw any lessons from that or any suggestions about what we uh, we, we might do to, to develop a consistent policy approach with regards to the DPRK, uh, because what we've done so far, from what I can tell, hasn't worked. So I, I look to you, are, are there lessons learned from the, the last decades that, that we ought to consider as we think about the next decades? And we begin with you, Dr. Shu. Um, so having participated in the failure <laughs> of that diplomacy, um, I would agree with you. I think, you know, we have been trying to deal with North Korea since uh, Ronald Reagan um, and have been unsuccessful. The, the deal that we put on the table effectively has been the same, which is, uh, you know, they, they freeze and uh, dismantle their major programs in return for economic assistance, food, political recognition, and uh, security guarantee, not security guarantee, a peace assurance um, on the peninsula and the region. It's come in different formats, bilaterally or multilaterally, six-party talks. But, you know, I think we have to come to the realization that's not the deal that they want anymore. Um, <clears throat> and, frankly, we're at a loss as to what to pursue next. I mean, as you've said, we've tried everything from expert working-level talks to summit le summitry, uh, leader-to-leader, on at least three different occasions, right? In Singapore, uh, in Hanoi, and at Panmunjom. And none of those have reached a conclusion. I mean, I don't want to sound skeptical, but I think that it's very difficult to imagine a deal that would satisfy us 
um, that could be had with the current regime in North Korea. Or the things that they would want um, to have a serious negotiation are things that's very difficult for us to give up, like our alliance relationship with South Korea, our troops on the Korean Peninsula, um, our forces in Japan as well. So it is, it is a, I guess the, one of the main lessons that I've learned from this is that it's not really the modalities of the negotiation or what's on offer. The problem right now is that uh, the, the deal that makes the most sense from a U.S. and allied perspective is not the one the North Koreans want. Yeah, thank you. Mr. Snyder. Yeah, as, as I think about the history, and it's a long uh, history, I think less about a cycle than about a progression in which things are getting worse. We are learning things about each other, and I think that what we are learning uh, with each iteration is actually making it even more difficult to bridge the gap. And so I think that we did learn something, for instance, from uh, engaging directly in summitry with Kim Jong-un, but the main thing I think we learned is that Kim Jong-un does not want to give up his nuclear weapons. Uh, and I think the main thing that he learned is that even though he thought he was entering into negotiations from a position of strength, he wasn't nearly powerful enough to coerce us into accepting his, him as a nuclear state. And so that dynamic is problematic, but I think that where the real uh, challenge comes is that we have spent so much time focusing on denial that we have not necessarily looked as closely as we needed to about how we can stimulate the pace of change inside an authoritarian, near totalitarian regime in such a way is that it can evolve in order to make different choices. And, and it's an exceedingly difficult challenge that I'm putting on the table. I think that's the reason why we've not been able to do it, is that you know, our perspective on uh, trying to counter their action uh, has kind of inhibited us, and even in policy terms, inhibits us from trying to reach in to North Korea and generate the level of uh, debate and even dissent that would actually be necessary for North Korea to change direction. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Ms. Town? Thank you, Senator. It is uh, an important question um, and, and one that, yeah, there's no easy answers to. Um, I think, you know, part of this process is we have to understand that North Korea is also growing stronger every year. Um, the where we started in negotiations with North Korea is not the North Korea it is today. Um, and North Korea has nuclear weapons. This isn't a non-proliferation challenge. You know, when we started negotiating in the, in the 1990s, we were trying to prevent North Korea from building nuclear weapons. Um, and we tend to still have that same proposition when we go into negotiations now, despite the fact that North Korea tested their first nuclear weapon in 2006 and has since then conducted five other tests. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we, we need to understand that what we're dealing with now, the nature of the denuclearization challenge right now is not non-proliferation, it is disarmament. And I think that really takes a very different approach um, in order to solve of how do you convince an insecure country to disarm and to trust that we have their best interests at heart, um, especially when there are examples out there um, that would prove otherwise. And so I think, you know, that's the fundamental um, problem with our approach today is that we still continue to hold on to this notion that we can, that we have time, that we can keep North Korea at the train station. And instead, they're already racing down the track. And what we're trying to do is stop a moving train. 
Um, so in, in doing so, I, I think we need to be more agile. I think one of the lessons we're learning is we need to be more agile. Right now, we tend to always approach this issue in a denuclearization-centric um, approach, where if North Korea is not willing to talk about denuclearization, which they are not right now, um, then we're left empty-handed. They have all of the agency to control the process. Um, because we're not, we're not really interested in talking about anything else at the moment, even though we do have other security concerns, and especially about preventing nuclear conflict um, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, so I think we need to be um, more, we, we need to take these lessons to heart and actually start to, to pull that process apart instead of looking for um, the big ideal get to the end of the road kind of agreements, we need to start building this in steps. We need to start um, providing the kind of incentives um, and kind of early wins that would help create some momentum in any negotiation process. Um, and we need to be open to talking about issues other than just denuclearization, especially just to rebuild the relationship itself. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. For the last several years, the United States has expanded our uh, approach to security on the Korean Peninsula. For example, deploying strategic assets to South Korea like nuclear-armed submarines, the restarted trilateral exercises and cooperation. And then earlier this year, it was already referenced, the U.S. and South Korea National Security Authorities announced the Nuclear Consultative Group so our two countries could talk about deterrent strategies. Uh, I think this is a step forward in what we're doing, but Dr. Child, I'd like to get your assessment of the NCG and what do you see as the long-term benefits to the United States and to South Korea? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, so the, as you know well, the Nuclear Consultative Group was created out of the Washington Declaration to try to address um, concerns about the credibility of U.S. nuclear extended deterrence on the peninsula. Why do, the, why do the Koreans have these concerns? As Jenny said, the train has left the station. North Korea really has ramped up their capabilities. Again, 100 ballistic missile tests. Um, and the NCG was meant to try to address that um, in a way that goes beyond the existing dialogues, like the, the KID, the Korea. Um, the, the, there are several other dialogues, as you know, that take place. But this was meant to be a high level that provided more um, insight into US nuclear planning. Um, it's not nuclear sharing, uh, but it's an important next step in terms of the U.S.-Korea military relationship, and I think a good one. Um, does it check the box in terms of uh, credibility of nuclear deterrence? I think for the time being it does. Um, <clears throat> but in the longer term, as North Korea continues to develop these capabilities and as China also continues to ramp up their uh, nuclear weapons uh, capabilities through the end of this decade, there will be more questions that come up, both in Korea and Japan, about the, about the credibility of our nuclear umbrella. So those are bridges we're going to have to cross uh, in the future eventually. But for, uh, for the time being, I think this was an important step that the administration took and all for the better of the alliance. So are there specific recommendations you have for the partnership that would make it more effective? Um, so one of the things we, we at CSIS did a report um, on this, and one of the things that we suggest were was taken up by the administration was more um, uh, direct real-time warning sharing. Um, 
but there, there are other things that we can consider. For example, one of the things I mentioned in my testimony is more cooperation between South Korea, Japan, and AUKUS uh, in terms of not necessarily to supply South Korea with nuclear submarines, but just as a very specific example, um, um, uh, you know, uh, Australian nuclear submarines, if they get serviced now, will need to go all the way to Groton, Connecticut. Uh, meanwhile, in South Korea, there are world-class uh, ports uh, that could be nuclear certified, uh, where they could do the work. They could do the work there. Um, uh, same is the case for Japan, although there, you know, there is a there is a different uh, attitude and norm with regard to nuclear weapons in in Japan. Very clearly, another which we have suggested in the past is is not to redeploy nuclear weapons to the U.S. nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula, but to at least just begin a preliminary dialogue about what would be the infrastructure prerequisites if we were to consider something like that. Even beginning that dialogue at a, at a working level, not at a high policy level, like at a working level, would also send an important deterrent signal, not just to North Korea, but in particular to our, to our ally. As you know well, deterrence is about capabilities and intentions. And I don't think there's anybody, any of our allies in the region, that doubt U.S. capabilities. But there are concerns about intentions. And these sorts of things, as I've just described them, help to send the right signal about the credibility of the U.S. umbrella. The uh, CCP has expressed concerns about this partnership. Do you have any concerns about them retaliating because of what we're doing with the NCG? Uh, I mean, the, the type of retaliation I, I'm most concerned about is, is not military retaliation, but economic coercion. Uh, when the United States put a missile defense battery in Korea in 2016, <clears throat> 2017, uh, China carried out a campaign of economic coercion against South Korea that cost South Korea tens of billions of dollars. And as you know well, they've done this to many countries in the region. And, and so I think that is the most proximate threat in terms of retaliation. Um, uh, and of course, they would they would uh, draw closer to North Korea as a result of that. But I really hesitate at the idea of thinking that if we don't do something to strengthen our alliances, that somehow China and Russia will then moderate what they do with North Korea. I don't think that's the case. I mean, they will continue to pursue a tightening of their relationship, regardless of what we do. So do you, would you agree that when the CCP actually expresses displeasure about something, that probably means we're on the right track? With regard to deterrence, yeah, I mean that's a yeah, yeah that would be a reflection of that the signal is being heard and, and that we're on the right track. Yes. Great, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all of the testifiers for being here. I want to follow up on uh, Senator Romney's uh, line of questioning. Um, I've I've been now I've been here for eleven years, not on the Foreign Relations uh, Committee the whole time, and looking obviously very carefully about at this issue, uh, both from the United States' equities, but obviously specifically representing the state of Hawaii. And it just seems to me that complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is not feasible. And I remember being, I'm prepping for a hearing, and one of my staffers rec recommended that I not be on the bleeding edge of admitting that. And then Senator Corker just went ahead and said it all. Um, and, and, and so I just kind of want to get on the record um, 
Mr. Cha, uh, Ms. Town in particular, your, your view of that, because it seems to me that we just keep kind of whistling past this graveyard, and every time I get a briefing, either at the national security level or in the foreign policy context, it's sort of like uh, magical thinking. You know, maybe they won't be able to do this. Here's the technological piece they have. Oh, look, they solved that. Oh, they, we thought they couldn't range uh, 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 Guam. Oh, they can range Guam. Now they've got, and now they can range CONUS. And we, well, re-entry, well, they got that. And they keep getting better and better and seem to be totally undeterred. And we just need a new pathway. And so I'll start with you, Mr. Shaw. What is that new pathway? That's a really hard question. <laughs> well, why don't we do it this yeah, way? Because yeah. I do only have three minutes. I want to hear from both of you. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. It's, and maybe it's, it's the wrong question to ask because the, the problem with our current policy is where we start with the end. Right. Right? Yeah. What are some short-term incremental steps that we can take to increase the potential for leverage and the potential for good outcomes in the short term? Yeah. Forget denuclearizing the peninsula. Let's talk about risk reduction in the short term. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't mean to be uh, flippant about the question. I think it's a very important one. Like, as you know, I'm a part-time resident of Hawaii, so I think about this as well all the you time. On a couple of airplanes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, but I do think, practically speaking, it is, it is uh, threat reduction. It is risk reduction. I mean, CVID is the bumper sticker, and there are political um, and alliance management reasons why we need to say CVID having to do with Japan. Uh, having to do with our Iran policy as well as the NPT regime. Um, but if we were ever to get back into a negotiation as a former negotiator, the first steps would be threat reduction, risk reduction, freezing Yongbyon, right? Um, 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 getting inspectors back in, trying to get into the experimental light water reactor. In exchange uh, for what? Well, I mean, in exchange for things like reducing sanctions, um, the 2016, 2017 sanctions, the general sector sanctions, which were the ones that the North Koreans were most concerned about when President Trump met them in, in, um, in uh, Vietnam. Um, uh, uh, political recognition, uh, security assurances, these sorts of things. Uh, the danger, of course, is that people will accuse whichever administration were to re-engage with this as buying the same horse for the 15th time. Well, it's two, th there's two I mean, there are a number of dangers, but the, the two obvious ones are what it does for non-proliferation policy globally, and then the other is politics, right? Yeah. Who wants to be the administration that softens its stance on North Korea as they're engaged in all this belligerent behavior? I'm gonna have to stop it there and go to Ms. Town. Well, yeah, if it, I mean, this is, this is the million dollar question, right? <laughs> of is denuclearization possible? And if we believe it's not, then what are we doing? Um, I think, you know, if we think about denuclearization, North Korea's thinking on denuclearization on its nuclear program has fundamentally changed. So whatever hope we had before is even less now. Um, but that doesn't mean we give up. We should continue to try. We should continue to try to work for, um, you know, a denuclearized Korean peninsula, which also includes preventing South Korea from going nuclear. Uh, but in the meantime, I think we really do need to define what our other goals with North Korea are. And there were trends, for instance, that were promising in North Korea um, prior to 2017, 2018, um, when negotiations started. And those were market, the rise of markets, um, the, uh, the growing kind of socioeconomic space and social change that was happening inside the country. 
Um, and if we look at the policies that we have now, um, our punitive approach to North Korea because of their nuclear program is really cutting off a lot of the, is really counterproductive to a lot of the productive things we thought were going on. So, you know, I think there is a reason to rethink our sanctions policies um, and really distinguish between that which is actually going to affect any kind of procurement of um, dual-use goods uh, versus that that's going to have um, spillover effects into the economy, right? How do we get, how do we re-empower the people? We always talk about wanting to get information into the people, but we continue to cut off our own access to the people and their access to us. Um, and their access to goods and markets. One final oh, just one final comment. You know, the, the, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I, I just think it, it, we really need your help on developing more tools because otherwise we just keep hammering the same nail and, and saying, how come this isn't working? And so um, we need to open up the aperture on a bipartisan basis um, to get smarter on this because this, as Senator Romney said, this, this policy is a failure and has to change. If I could just say one of the tools on the enforcement side really is, you know, some of the, so as Senator Van Hollen mentioned, some of the work that has been done on things like the Auto Warm Beer Act, um, the use of banking restrictions, and especially on the secondary sanctioning side. I mean, I know sanctions don't solve all the problem, but, um, um, but, uh, but th these, are, these are important sanctions. We're starting a project now where we're trying to identify supply chains for other things that are being imported by countries in the West um, and China with regard to, to North Korea for secondary sanctioning. I mean, there is the engagement side, but um, there is the, is the sanction side, and that is an important piece of this as well. So. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator uh, Schatz. And uh, I know Senator Romney has to, has to leave now. Uh, thank you, Senator. And, you know, when we were thinking about having this hearing on the Korean Peninsula, um, we thought we might get to the point where there was uh, a consensus that what we've been doing clearly is not successful, um, at least in achieving the goal as we've stated it, which is denuclearization of the Korean uh, Peninsula. Uh, I, that's a very worthy goal, but it, in practice, clearly, uh, we've not been able to achieve it, um, as, as you all have indicated in, in response to Senator Schatz's question and others. Um, so I do agree that we need to be thinking of other sort of long-term approaches. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, uh, I want to ask all of you about uh, both North Korea's relationship with Russia and near-term decisions that we may need to make, and then North Korea's relationship with China uh, and what kind of decisions that we might be interested in making jointly with them. So on the case of Russia, um, we had, of course, uh, President Yoon uh, in response to uh, you know, North Korea's uh, visit to, you know, the, the visit with Putin, say we will not stand idly by. So my, my question is, what, what would you all recommend <laughs> that we do uh, to put uh, some kind of teeth behind that? that statement, not, not sit idly by. Now, Dr. Cha, uh, one idea that you suggested we look at was uh, South Korea provide lethal uh, assistance uh, to support Ukraine. As so far, they've been 
support, they've been providing important assistance, non-lethal uh, assistance. Uh, and then as I listen to all of you, you've got the, the, the issue of, you know, North Korea providing munitions to Russia on the assumed promise that Russia would now help North Korea in providing higher technology, more technology uh, to its missile systems, submarines, and others uh, in, in return. So could you just speak a little bit to that, that dynamic? On the one hand, you could see how South Korea threatening to provide more lethal assistance <laughs> to uh, Russia could be used maybe to get Russia to commit not to provide anything more to North Korea. Um, on the other hand, obviously, you know, we would like to see as much support as possible uh, go to, to the people of Ukraine at this point in time. So those are, if you could talk through a little bit that, that decision tree, starting with you, Dr. Cha. Sure. Um, uh, very important question. Um, so on the South Korean lethal assistance, uh, I was in uh, Korea about two weeks ago at a, a conference where the former national security advisor to the current South Korean president um, in a public venue had said that if Russia is going to provide, I mean, if North Korea is going to assist Russia and Russians are going to pay the North Koreans in technology and, and that's a direct threat to South Korea, so South Korea should actually do something about that. And, and uh, I, I thought it was a, I was surprised by the statement, but I think it sort of says where the thinking is on this. And as you said, um, Ukraine needs help. I mean, if there's any place in the world that where there are munition stockpiles, it's on the Korean Peninsula. And I can pretty sure that South Korean munitions are going to be better than North Korean munitions. Um, in terms of what else could be done about it, you know, th there is this kind of open question about China because I can't imagine that China is 100% behind all this. Um, and they certainly don't like uh, Russia and North Korea getting closer together. So I don't know if there's some way to pull China away from this. They have not been very committal publicly. They were not at the UN uh, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Wang Yi has, gone, has been to Russia, but we don't know what came of that. And then the third thing is, um, again, some of the work that you have already done on this, and that is in terms of um, sanctions packages and secondary sanctioning um, of um, r uh, r Russian entities, companies, and others that might, uh, that not Russian entities and companies, but also secondary sanctioning uh, to those that might be affiliated with those companies uh, as a way to create some sort of, um, um, some sort of compellence so that there are costs to Russia engaging with North Korea. Thank you, uh, Mr. Snyder. Yeah, um, I was actually at the same meeting that Victor was at the former National Security Advisor, and uh, I do believe that that was um, uh, an important uh, form of response that was reflected in the broader South Korean media, and I imagine was also transmitted to Moscow. And so one of the key issues is making sure that Putin got the message uh, on that. I think he probably did. Uh, but the other aspect of that uh, Putin-Kim meeting that I think we need to keep in mind uh, as we think about all the possibilities for the Russian-North Korea relationship is that these are two isolated leaders that distrust each other and probably don't have much uh, trust in each other's products either. 
So this is a very transactional relationship. It may be more limited, but they have control of their public um, uh, communications. Uh, and I think that Putin uh, and Kim were sort of trolling the U.S. and South Korea a little bit. I don't want to, to dismiss the risk of greater Russia-North Korea interaction as a way of expanding the North Korea problem, but I also think that we shouldn't allow it to be overblown. Got it. Thank you. Ms. Town? Um, thank you, Senator. I think uh, on the Russia angle, I, I wasn't at that conference, um, but I was on a panel recently with a, a Russian diplomat or former diplomat, and the way he described it um, of Russia's approach uh, was a bit more strategic than just Ukraine. It wasn't just about Ukraine. It was about um, building a security partner for the war against the West. Um, and, and I think there's, and I think that also feeds into why Russia would be more willing to build actual military cooperation and not just do an arms deal. Because um, we know, you know, Kim Jong-un didn't need to go to Russia to broker an arms deal. Um, so I think there, there, this plays into all of the great power competition that's going on, and I, I do think you know the it will change South Korea's calculus on Ukraine, um, and because it does suddenly now make um, Ukraine more of a Korean Peninsula security issue if Russia is going to directly grow its military cooperation with North Korea. Um, but I think the China angle is also really important here because China does still care about its international reputation and is worried about worst case scenarios um, in East Asia. And I think this is one area of cooperation and one area of discussion that they would be willing to have of how do we prevent this from actually um, changing the, the balance of power in such a negative way that we can't come back from. Well, let me pick up there uh, because, uh, as I, I indicated, I wanted to talk a little bit about both the you know, North Korea-Russia relationship and how that's developing, but also the, uh, the North Korea-China uh, relationship. And I think all of you have made the point uh, that if you go back a number of years, uh, China was willing to work much more closely with the United States uh, with respect to restraining uh, North Korea's nuclear program, nuclear testing, missiles. Um, they were with us at the UN uh, a couple times uh, many years ago in terms of sanctions. All that's changed. Uh, and now, you know, China is, has sort of not cooperated with us in that way. At the same time, I have to believe that they continue to have an interest in constraining North Korea's nuclear programs, both missile and, and another a potential other weapons test. I, I, maybe talk a little bit more about how we communicate that with China, because at the same time, we have these other big challenges. I agree with Dr. Cha. We can't sort of forfeit the strengthening of our alliances, um, whether it's through having a South Korean role in AUKUS or other, other issues. Um, but at the same time, if we agree that China does have a mutual interest with us in constraining uh, the North Korean nuclear weapons program overall, what, what, what can and should we be doing uh, on that front? Maybe we'll start with this town and then go this way. Uh, thank you, Senator. I, 
It's a tough question um, because there, there are a lot of competing interests here. Uh, and it is, you know, North Korea tends to be fairly low on China's priorities as well. Um, and so I think the, the military cooperation between Russia and North Korea, I don't think came as a surprise to the Chinese. And certainly they sent a delegation to Pyongyang ahead of that summit. Um, and there was presumably meetings um, with the Russians before that as well. And there was no condemnation of it that came out from the Chinese after it happened. Um, but again, I do think there is concern there. And in, in recent discussions I've had with Chinese uh, scholars is that they're also wondering <laughs> what to do. And they're very um, concerned that the situation is getting out of control. I, I think there's room for perhaps a... Um, a regional security discussion to happen at a high level, um, not about any specific country, but where the region is headed as a whole, um, to see if you can start that dialogue um, and, and under the premise of preventing nuclear war. Um, but I also think there's interesting opportunities for other kinds of incentives to be given to the Chinese as well, um, especially with the uh, prospects of a China, South Korea, Japan trilateral summit coming before the end of the year. If there's some concessions that can be made in that that could incentivize the Chinese to also think twice about where it stands in terms of North Korea-Russia cooperation. Thank you. Mr. Snyder? Yeah, the, the biggest concern I have about the development of the North Korea-Russia relationship is actually that it'll damage the possible apparent restraint measures that China has urged on North Korea as related to a seventh nuclear test. I mean, we don't know necessarily with any assurance what precisely China has done, uh, but the U.S. intelligence community has been expecting this test and it hasn't happened. Uh, and so uh, what my main concern is really that Kim Jong-un might misread his engagement with Russia as giving him license to do what he did, what his grandfather did in the Cold War, play the Chinese and the Soviets off against each other. But I think that China's overall, North Korea's overall level of dependence on China is great enough that China does not have to go down that road. Uh, I do think that this is an area where both the U.S. and South Korea have an interest in continuing to engage with China, even if they're not fully forthcoming about the actions that they take as related to North Korea. Thank you. Dr. Cha. Um, so I think unless you're a super hard line in China, the majority of sort of, I think, China foreign policy thinkers cannot see this DPRK Russia thing as in China's interest. Like, it just can't be. I mean... First of all, they want to neutralize Russia and North Korea getting closer together. Historically, they've always not liked it when Russia and North Korea get too close. They don't want to be seen as tacitly supporting this in a way that involves them in um, uh, expanding the war in Ukraine or prolonging it. And then um, I think the other thing that they should be concerned about, um, and there was a, there's actually a very good uh, long-form interview in uh, Jenny's uh, program in 38 North about this, is a concern about Russia supplying uh, fuel for North Korea's uh, nuclear uh, reactors. I mean, this, the, the absence of fuel is one of the biggest constraints right now on North Korea really expanding their nuclear weapons program. But if Russia provides fuel under the, under the guise of civilian nuclear energy, so within NPT regime, um, um, within the NPT regime, 
uh, as I said in my testimony, North Korea's goal is to develop a, a nuclear weapons uh, force the size of the UK or France. Uh, and if the Chinese cannot possibly think that is good. So the real question is, can they get out of their own way to do something that's in their interests and not tie it to how upset they are at US-China competition? Like, can they get out of their own way and do that? Thus far, they haven't been able to. It, that the UN basically, when they were asked about this, they said, oh, that's just a Russia-North Korea bilateral issue. It's not something we, should, we have any comment on, which I think is a placeholder as they try to figure out exactly what they can do here. So I, I agree, I think, with the gist of my, um, my uh, um, colleagues' comments that this is something that we should really investigate with China and try to engage in a dialogue with them uh, because it's clearly in both of our interests to, uh, to see this stopped. Well, thank you. Uh, there's much more I'd like to ask uh, all three of you about, but there's a vote on, and uh, I am being summoned uh, to cast my vote since my colleagues are, are waiting. But thank you for much food for thought uh, as we uh, move forward uh, on all the issues that we covered. Um, we may submit some questions uh, for the record, uh, if you're all willing to entertain those. Um, you covered, mentioned Dr. Cha, the issue of responding to economic coercion. Um, and thank you for having me over at CSIS uh, last week to make some remarks on our important alliance between the United States and the ROK. Uh, there are issues of making sure that we coordinate when it comes to the export of very sophisticated technologies uh, that could be uh, used to enhance China's military uh, without uh, trying to you know, hurt their economy just focused on the military piece, but that requires a lot of collaboration. Uh, there are issues regarding um, the, the issue of cryptocurrency and the ROK's use of uh, cryptocurrency and theft of cryptocurrency um, in itself and to evade sanctions. So there are a lot of other issues to talk about, but I, I do think that uh, you successfully sort of hit some of the, the big questions uh, that we have to, to deal with, some of the longer-term questions we have to address as well um, as identifying some really short-term uh, important interests um, regarding, for example, uh, working with China uh, to try to discourage another nuclear test, uh, those kind of uh, things. So uh, I know I speak on behalf of uh, all my colleagues who are here and um, others that wish they would be here, uh, thanking you for your expertise, sharing your expertise here today, but also uh, your ongoing uh, efforts uh, in this area. And, and finally, let me just close where I began, I think each of you began, which is the importance of the alliance uh, between uh, the United States and South Korea, uh, forged in mutual sacrifice. And I think uh, recent events have testified to the strength of that relationship. Uh, we wanna make sure it remains that way, and this hearing is an uh, important part of that process. So let me thank all three of you, and with that, uh, this meeting's adjourned.